Section 9 of Woman and the Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey. Woman and the Republic by Helen Johnson. Section 9. These quarrels, stirred up through the unseemly conduct of men and women, as we have seen, they were willing to precipitate upon a convention in a foreign land, a convention, too, which had declared its desire not to receive them as delegates. Upon the calling of the roll, the meeting was thrown into excitement and confusion on a subject foreign to that which brought them together. Wendell Phillips eloquently pleaded for the admission of the women. The English officers, while showing their personal courtesy, begged to remind them that the Queen, and many ladies in various stations, were represented by male delegates, and that to admit the American ladies would be to cast a slight upon their own active members, many of whom were present. During the heated discussion, Mr. James Fuller said, One friend has stated that this question should have been settled on the other side of the Atlantic. Why, it was so settled, and in favor of the women. Mr. James G. Burney answered, The right of the women to sit and act in all respects as men in our anti-slavery associations was so decided in the Society in May 1839, but not by a large majority, which majority was swelled by the votes of the women themselves. I have just received a letter from a gentleman in New York, Louis Tapan, communicating the fact that the persistence of the friends of promiscuous female representation in pressing that practice on the American Anti-Slavery Society at its annual meeting on the 12th of last month had caused such disagreement that he and others who viewed the subject as he did were deliberating the question of seceding from the old organization. Louis Tapan, a founder of the American Missionary Society, was intimately connected with his brother Arthur in all anti-slavery work. Arthur was a founder of the American Tract Society and of Oberlin College and a benefactor of Lane Seminary. He established the Emancipator and was president of the American Anti-Slavery Society until compelled with his brother Lewis to withdraw on account of the conduct of the no-government men and women and take nearly all the society with him. When the vote was taken in the London meeting, the women were excluded on the ground that, it being contrary to English usage, it would subject them to ridicule and prejudice their cause. George Thompson then said, I hope, as this question is now decided, that Mr. Phillips will give us the assurance that we shall proceed with one heart and one mind. Mr. Phillips replied, I have no doubt of it. There is no unpleasant feeling on our part. All we asked was an expression of opinion we shall now act with the utmost cordiality. But Mr. Phillips had reckoned without his host and hostesses. Mr. Garrison had not been present at the discussion, but he arrived at this juncture and took his seat with the excluded delegates. During a twelve days' discussion of the momentous cause that had called them together, which he had professed especially to champion, he took not the slightest part. Such was his mistaken zeal that he was willing so to stultify himself and the women were willing to applaud him in so doing. The spirit that looked upon the American Constitution as a covenant with death and an agreement with hell was there. 
the spirit that defied all authority and could confound liberty of conscience with the formal acts of courtesy between man and man was there the spirit that took for its motto you cannot shut up discord was there and out of these combined elements trained in the school of thought that had treated as tyranny the religious and civil liberty of the united states grew directly the woman suffrage movement elizabeth cady stanton was not a delegate the delegates were abby kelly esther moore and lucretia mott mrs stanton was a bride and in the immediate party on this their wedding trip was mr burney her husband's special friend the writers of the history say as the ladies were not allowed to speak in the convention they kept up a brisk fire morning noon and night on the unfortunate gentlemen who were domiciled at the same house mrs stanton had not been identified with any of these abolition quarrels but she records that now she took her full share of the firing notwithstanding her husband's gentle nudges under the table and mr burney's ominous frowns across it in the volume entitled woman's work in america in a contribution called woman in the state written by mrs mary a livermore she says the leaders in the new suffrage movement lucretia mott and mrs stanton with their husbands did thus and so in originating it lucretia mott's husband was with her as a silent member of the conventions but elizabeth cady stanton's husband is conspicuous for his absence from every list of officers or attendants from the inception of the suffrage movement until his death he may have been in perfect sympathy with his wife but since the names of all the men already mentioned in connection with the mad no civil no family no personal government movement do appear and his does not it is impossible not to challenge mrs livermore's statement the last reference to him in the history was as voting on the occasion of the london meeting in favor of the women's admission to the world's convention no mention is made of any speech or of any reasons given certain it is that while mr garrison became the conspicuous standard-bearer for the women's rights movement mr stanton became one of the conspicuous bearers of the standard of the free soil and republican parties which included some of anti-slavery's staunchest friends who were denounced by garrison as its foes thus it seems evident to me that the woman suffrage movement no more grew logically out of the great discussions on human bondage which began with washington jefferson adams franklin hamilton and john jay and ended with sumner seward and lincoln then the communes of this country grew out of the utterances of the fathers based on the declaration that all men are created equal and are endowed with certain inalienable rights among which are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness it was among those whose mistaken zeal and wild conduct were most mischievous that the suffrage sentiment gathered head their lack of judgment in defying the opinions of their own sex as well as of the other their rapt forgetfulness of properties which incited mobs and proved a fine tool for the frenzy of so-called social reformers brought contempt upon womanhood as well as upon the cause they advocated women in the churches and out were the strength of the anti-slavery movement but not these women as to the notable meeting in london had the delegates been the highest and largest-minded and most cultured of their sex and had their cause been the noblest they and it would have been dishonored by the method of its presentation american women of today would no more applaud such conduct than did those of fifty years ago 
women have won lasting public favor and place, while suffrage has won an uneasy footing by unenviable methods. This survey enables us to understand what otherwise would seem most strange, how the women of the suffrage movement, in claiming the right of suffrage, ignored the duties and powers based upon and connected with it, those that formed the defense which made possible any such nation as ours. Added to the extreme Quaker doctrine of peace at any price was the fanatical notion of the sinfulness of all war, all use of physical force, and a cool assumption that opinion was law. Mrs. Maria Chapman read, at one of the early women's rights conventions, a string of verses that reveals the absurdity of the situation. It was in reply to a clerical appeal issued by the Reverend Nehemiah Adams, whose Southside view of slavery received more anti-slavery attention than it deserved, for it expressed only his own fantastic ideas. In the appeal he maintains that women should paint in watercolors only, not in oil. Mrs. Chapman says, Our patriot fathers of eloquent fame waged war against tangible forms. Aye, their foes were men, and if ours were the same— we might speedily quiet their storms. But, ah, their descendants enjoy not such bliss. The assumptions of Britain were nothing to this. Could we but array all our force in the field, we'd teach these usurpers of power that their bodily safety demands they should yield, and in presence of womanhood cower. But, alas, for our tethered and impotent state, chained by notions of knighthood, we can but debate. O oh, shade of the prophet Muhammad, arise, place woman again in her sphere, and teach that her soul was not born for the skies, but to flutter a brief moment here. This doctrine of Jesus, as preached up by Paul, if embraced in its spirit, will ruin us all. Mention of Mrs. Chapman recalls her attitude toward Frederick Douglass and the further fact that he became an advocate of suffrage. In his life and times, he says, I could not meet her, Mrs. Stanton's arguments, except with the shallow plea of custom, natural division of duties, indelicacy of woman's taking part in politics, the common talk of woman's sphere, and the like, all of which that able woman brushed away by those arguments which no man has yet successfully refuted. Mr. Douglas might have called to mind the fact, to the recognition of which he had been so thoroughly converted, and which he set forth on page 460 of his book, when he wrote, I insisted that the liberties of the American people were dependent upon the ballot box, the jury box, and the cartridge box. He forgot that Mrs. Stanton, in defiance of those social laws that had weight with him, was asking to use the first, to use partially the second, and to ignore the third, on which both of the others depend for continuance. The history is dedicated to Harriet Martineau, among other women, as one who influenced the starting of the suffrage movement. Turning to Miss Martineau's Society in America, published in 1837, I find the following in her account of the anti-slavery movement in the United States. The progress of the abolition question within three years throughout the whole of the rural districts of the North is a far stronger testimony to the virtue of the nation than the noisy clamor of a portion of the slaveholders of the South, and the merchant aristocracy of the North, and the silence of the clergy, against it. The nation must not be judged of by that portion whose worldly interests are involved in the maintenance of the anomaly. 
nor yet by the eight hundred flourishing abolition societies of the North, with all the supporters they have in unassociated individuals. If it be found that the five abolitionists who first met in a little chamber five years ago, to measure their moral strength against this national enormity, have become a host beneath whose assaults the vicious institution is rocking to its foundations, it is time that slavery was ceasing to be a national reproach. An observer who could be made to believe that these five abolitionists had really accomplished more toward the overthrow of slavery than 800 flourishing abolition societies and their outside supporters, and that the great body of clergymen were silent because they did not adopt the methods of the five who set themselves against church and state, shows a credulity that leads one to question the information and the conclusions on which her judgment of the relation of American women to the Republic were based. As a proof that when women entered into public work in a womanly way they found support from the church and the abolitionists, we may point to perhaps the first organized charitable and industrial work done among women in this country. In 1834, Mrs. Charles Hawking of New York City had convened in the Third Free Church, corner of Houston and Thompson Streets, a meeting which resulted in the immediate formation of the Moral Reform Society. Clergymen who were in sympathy with the movement addressed the meeting. The Female Guardian Society was founded by them a year later, and a newspaper was established to present its claims. The officers were women. They visited the tombs and held weekly prayer meetings. They secured the legislation necessary to bring about the separation of men and women in the city prisons and the appointment of matrons for the women. In 1853, they procured an enactment whereby dissipated and vicious parents, by habitually neglecting due care and provision for their offspring, shall forfeit their natural claim to them, and whereby such children shall be removed from them and placed under better influences till the claim of the parents shall be re-established by continued sobriety, industry, and general good conduct. They secured the passage of the Truant Act and the appointment of Truant Officers. Mr. Louis Tapan was not only the auditor for the organization, but gave effective help by suggestions that led to the establishment of the first home for the friendless, of which there are now seven in charge of the society. In 1854, industrial schools were added. Cooking, housekeeping, kindergarten, and fresh air work developed rapidly. There are now 12 industrial schools, where 6,000 children are taught. The report of the first semi-annual meeting held in Utica, New York, is in quaint contrast to the reports of the first suffrage meetings. They say, The utmost harmony and union of feeling have characterized all the proceedings, and as we looked around and saw the intelligence and piety and moral worth that was assembled there, and listened to the discussion of subjects of practical importance, while everyone was manifestly seeking to know and do her duty, we could not but feel that the most determined opposer of women's meetings would have found nothing to censor had he been present. There has been no frivolity, no fanaticism, no disorder. We are sure that not a wife or mother was there, who was not at least as well disposed and prepared to discharge her relative duties as she would have been if she had kept at home. Upon the great cause of temperance also, the woman suffrage movement early laid a blighting hand. 
as will be remembered total abstinence was one of the doctrines to which many of the no government common property men and women were pledged western and central new york has been the birthplace of some of the wildest and most destructive movements that our social life has witnessed if the year eighteen forty eight which saw the beginnings of the woman suffrage movement was wonderful for revolutions and insurrections the world over the years that preceded it were remarkable especially in this country and this state for some of the maddest vagaries that ever have been known here there and then arose the shaker excitement so fantastic that only now and then was the outside world permitted to know what was being done then and there fourierism found its most fruitful field and of the dozen or more communities that were started several united in forming near rochester an industrial union john collins started a number of vague branches of what the fourierites called the no god no government no marriage no money no meat no salt no pepper system of community here john h noyes under the guise of a new heaven on an old earth established his foul community at oneida there and then the millerite madness sent whole congregations into the cemeteries in white gowns to await the sounding of the trump of gabriel there and then arose the great spiritualistic movement that began in wayne county with the fox family became famous as the rochester knockings and blossomed into communities in which free love grew out of individual sovereignty then and there in wayne county joseph smith pretended that the angel moroni had shown him the book of mormon many of these movements were in sympathy with woman suffrage and workers in them early found their way into its ranks in the midst of the anti-slavery excitement secret temperance organizations were formed among the women in new york state known as the daughters of temperance finding as they said that there was no law nor gospel in the land they became a law unto themselves and visited saloons where they broke windows glasses and bottles and threw kegs and barrels of liquor into the streets a few were arrested but they were soon discharged as time went on these secret organizations began to form themselves into regular bodies and in january eighteen fifty two they assembled their delegates at albany to claim admission to the state temperance organization with no invitation or authority but their own susan b anthony was the first speaker and when the convention decided not to hear her it was announced that they would withdraw and hold a meeting where men and women would be equal which they accordingly did the movement continued until three months later miss anthony called the new york state temperance convention of which mrs stanton was elected president among the resolutions that she introduced in her opening speech were these that no woman remain in the relation of wife to a confirmed drunkard that the state should be petitioned so to modify its laws affecting marriage and the custody of children that the drunkard shall have no claims on either wife or child that no liquor should be used for culinary purposes and that as charity begins at home let us withdraw from all associations for sending the gospel to the heathen across the ocean for the education of young men for the ministry for the building up of a theological aristocracy and gorgeous temples to the unknown god and devote ourselves to the poor and suffering about us let us feed and clothe the naked and hungry gather children into schools and provide reading rooms and decent homes for young men and women thrown alone upon the world 
the organization of the Women's New York State Temperance Society was formed, and Mrs. Stanton was elected its president. She issued an appeal to the women of the state and sent a letter to the convention at Albany, which was so radical that its friends feared to read it. But Susan B. Anthony finally did so. They elected as delegates to the Men's New York State Temperance Convention to be held in Syracuse in June, Susan B. Anthony, Mrs. Amelia Bloomer, and Jarrett Smith. When they arrived, they were met by the Reverend Samuel J. May, who told them that the men were shocked at the idea of admitting them, and said that he was commissioned to beg them to withdraw. They decided to present their credentials, and of course the stormy scene which they had invited followed their action. This scene was repeated in every part of the state, the agitators figuring upon their own platforms as martyrs to the noble causes of anti-slavery, temperance, and woman's rights. A single quotation from a letter of Miss Anthony's, written at this time to the League, shows that then, as now, the radical woman workers for prohibition were nothing if not political. She says, And it is for woman now, in the present presidential campaign, to say to her father, husband, or brother, If you vote for any candidate for any office whatever, who is not pledged to total abstinence and the main law, we shall hold you alike guilty with the rum seller. In January 1853, a great mass meeting was held in Albany of all the state temperance organizations. The Women's Society met in a Baptist church, which was crowded at every session. Miss Anthony presided. 28,000 women had signed petitions for prohibitory legislation. The rules of the House were suspended, and the women were invited to present them at the Speaker's desk. They were then invited to New York and in Metropolitan Hall, addressed a large audience, as well as in the Broadway Tabernacle and Knickerbocker Hall, Brooklyn. In the next two months, they made successful tours of many cities of the state. But, like Mr. Garrison and Stephen Foster and H.C. Wright, the women thought that if they were not attacking and being attacked, there could be no progress or reform. They demanded divorce for drunkenness, they denounced wine at private tables, and called on the women to leave all church organizations where clergymen and bishops, liquor dealers and wine-bibbers, were dignified and honored as deacons and elders. They denounced the church for its apathy and the clergy for their hostility to the public action of women, and they soon began to turn the kindly feeling that was endeavoring to work with them into enmity, and were, of course, denounced in their turn. The society decided to invite men into their organization, but not to allow them to hold office or to vote. This they did for a year, after which men were admitted to full membership. The first annual meeting of the Women's State Temperance Society was held in Rochester, June 1, 1853, Mrs. Stanton presiding, and the attendance was larger than they had had at any time. In the course of the meetings, a heated debate on the subject of divorce took place. Mrs. Stanton and Lucy Stone took the ground that it was not only woman's right, but her duty to withdraw from all such unholy relations, and Mrs. Nichols and Antoinette Brown opposed them. The men were admitted to this convention, and, to use the words of the women, it was the policy of these worldly wise men to restrict the debate on temperance to such narrow limits as to disturb none of the existing conditions of society. This farce and reform soon came to an end, 
and the following is the epitaph pronounced over it by its founders. The society, with its guns silenced on the popular foes, lingered a year or two and was heard of no more. On May 12th, the Friends of Temperance met in Dr. Spring's Old Brick Church, New York City. A motion was made that all gentlemen present be admitted as delegates. Dr. Trawl of New York moved an amendment that the words and ladies be added, as there were delegates present from the Woman's State Temperance Society. The motion was carried, and the credentials were received. A motion was then made that Susan B. Anthony be added to the business committee, and all was in an uproar at once. Mayor Barstow twice asked that another chairman be appointed, as he would not preside over a meeting where woman's rights was introduced, or women were allowed to speak. Some of the gentlemen present said that the ladies were there expressly to disturb. The ministers present, like the laymen, were divided in opinion in regard to the admission of the delegates, but the credentials were withdrawn, and in due time the bearers of them withdrew also. The writers of the history say, Most of the liberal men and women now withdrew from all temperance organizations, leaving the movement in the hands of time-serving priests and politicians, who, being in the majority, effectually blocked the progress of the reform for the time, destroying, as they did, the enthusiasm of the women in trying to press it as a political measure. Comparing this work with their anti-slavery campaign, they say, when Garrison's forces had been thoroughly sifted, and only the picked men and women remained, he soon made political parties and church organizations feel the power of his burning words. It was the men and women from whom he and his were sifted who spoke the burning words that ended in burning deeds for the extinction of slavery, and thus it was with temperance. There remained after the sifting many societies, of one of which William E. Dodge and President Mark Hopkins were chief officers, and John B. Gow was principal orator. End of section 9. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey.